Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today, I am fortunate enough to have Robert Kateen, who is a Sag Harbor Corcoran broker. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm fantastic. You know, it's a, it's a great day. It's a beautiful day. Um, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been about a year and a half since the last time uh, you were on. But being a Sag Harbor broker, has anything happened in the real estate market in that time frame? I sorry. guess that is kind of a joke. I, I, I know. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. Sorry. <laughs> but, um, you know, John, next year I will have been licensed in real estate for 50 years. What? You look yep. like you're 50. Well, 1972, I got my first license. Um, I've only been doing it out here for the last 20. But... Um, I'll tell you, in 50 years of being involved with residential real estate, I have never seen anything like I've seen in the last 18 months. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's really crazy. And um, so different than other market swings that I've seen through my career that I'm sure that you have also. Likewise, yep. So what do you, what do you think... Uh, uh, since the inventory is so low, I'm sure you've had a few sellers approach you about listing their, their house. But of course, they always think that the, the market will sustain what they think the listing price should be, since that's what their friends say. Uh, have you had any sellers like that? And what do you say to them? Well, you know, I think in this market, since it's a secondary market to begin with, in all times, not just pandemic um not just up markets or down markets, most people feel kind of like, well, I'll sell my house if I can get this much for it. Uh, and they do listen to what other people say and, you know, and what they think the prices should be. I, I've gotten to the point where I say, look, I'll list your house for whatever you want, but it's my job to manage expectations. And so I'll list it but I'm going to tell you, here's what I truly believe uh, the house is going to sell for, right? right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've been a big advocate of getting a lot of uh, professional support data, if you will. Uh, every time I get a new listing, the first thing I do is have a broker-only open house with some kind of raffle to get people to come. But more importantly, that if they come and they fill out a blind card, they'll, their name will go in the hat for the raffle. So that blind card will have, what do you think the asking price should be? And what do you think the trade price should be on this property? And then when I get all of those cards together, since no, no broker has seen what the other broker has you know, put down, not right. like having a price list on a right. piece of paper. Then I can go back to the seller and say, well, here, I had 16 people here today. 
here's the average price, the mean, the high, the low, the weighted average. Here's what the real estate community believes your house is worth. And since over 70% of all the sales out here are by brokers other than the listing broker, it's important to know what the other brokers are thinking, or they're not going to bring their customers or they're going to bring their customers and they're going to be tainted um, that the price is wrong. Right. Well, you know, I always say, I didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I always say that uh, either your house is selling someone else's house or um, someone else's house is selling your house. Got it. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's like what you're saying. It's like, get the price, but you know, we both live in the same neighborhood and I guess you saw the house that um, uh, was sold, but recently for, I, f I forgot the number, but it just came back on the market a million dollars more than what it sold for recently. Did you, you know how the house I'm speaking about? I, I, I do. Yes. In fact, I'm glad to see that. I'm hoping it sells for that. As exactly. you know, right? Because you know, I'm, I'm right around the corner from you. But take a look at the house across the basin from me. That that wow. property um, sold for I don't know originally probably five hundred thousand dollars. The last sale was eight hundred thousand, uh, eight million. Mm -hmm. uh, the house was torn down. A million dollars worth of new bulkhead was put in. And now there's a 5,500 square foot house going up on top of there. Um, it's going to be a $12 million all in piece of property uh, that started out, you know, like I said, at wow. a half million. At a half. I know it's, it's uh, crazy out here. I mean, yep. it, it seems like Sag Harbor is the one place. That's the other thing is that um, I'm getting a lot of buyers coming in specifically looking at for Sag Harbor as compared to other um, areas like Southampton or East Hampton. And I was thinking, do you have any thoughts about that? Why that's so? You know, it's very interesting um, because I came out here initially in 1962 and uh, the guy who introduced me to the area owned a waterfront house in Sag Harbor. Sag Harbor wasn't considered the Hamptons. It was bankrupt. It was a little sleepy fishing village, now, kind of like mine. I'm sorry. I, I, uh, what, what year was that again? 1962. Wow. And when I bought the property that I built this house on mm -hmm. in 1998, this still wasn't considered the Hamptons. Right. But around in 2004, it was just like what happened when I would go out west skiing. The, the certain towns that were more realistic and more charming, um, all of a sudden became the in thing. And from one year to the next, Sag Harbor bloomed, if you will, and became the town in the Hamptons for the over 40 crowd, in my opinion. Right. Where a few years later, Montauk went through a similar kind of um, overhaul, if you will, and became the in-town for the under 40 crowd. And right now, I would say those are the two hottest markets out here. Yeah, yeah, I know. 
So, but what what is the the draw? I mean, like you say, you think it's the charm of Sag Harbor or the charm of Montauk? I mean, it's it's a com- combination here. Montauk, the under forty set, they're the partiers. That's a party town, right? The Sag Harbor is an adult community that supports boaters. It has a real village feel that you can walk around in. Uh, it's got plenty of restaurants and um, drinking establishments and those kinds of things. Um, so it's had that draw. And then on top of that, it's had two additional things. One is if you want your children in public schools, it's one of the best public school systems in the country. Hmm. Um, so there's always been a draw for people to have their kids here in school. And then, you know, the other thing when, when you look at all of that is that this has now made the prices go up and it's supporting higher prices. So people that are looking to come out here are seeing this as a market that still has some room to expand. So that's where they want to be. Plus also it has the, the interestingly enough, uh, the culture, you know, now we've got uh, the Bay Street Theater that's going to be uh, being built where it used to be the 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. And, and we have the cinema too now, which I think just recently opened up. So, um, I mean, it's got everything, I guess, in a sense. And, and you've got the park, you know, the uh, Ashimut uh, Park, which uh, yeah. is always packed with, uh, you know, parents with their kids you know so uh it, it's it's interesting but the 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 idea the uh the uh the price is you know just like you said you know uh, exponentially climbing is is phenomenal um i have a question so what kind of advice do you offer to a buyer coming into coming into the market and how do you prepare them i mean especially buyers they're coming here and they want to buy something but you know what happens so what what's your answer to that well you know, and this is a difficult thing in this period of time, because in addition to this being a hot area, the the pandemic has caused such an exodus from Manhattan and the ability for people to work out of their homes, which will probably never go totally back to the way it used to be, has taken the inventory out and driven the prices up. So I do caution people that if you're getting in here now, when we see New York starting to open up, when we see uh, the number of vaccinations going up, that this blip may not be forever. But if you look at, and I'm looking back over 50 years of residential retail housing prices, this is a stair step. Take a look at the, the Dow Jones. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, and that now it's going up higher than before. Then it goes down, then it goes up higher again. So if you're in the market long enough to sit out four or five years, pretty much you're going to see that market swing the other way again for you. Absolutely. So I just tell people that, you know, this is this is what it's going to take to get in here. Here's the risks. Let's go find you a house. 
gut. So, uh, Bob, uh, thank you so much for your time coming on the program. But um, so how can someone get in touch with you? Um, I can be reached through the Corcoran website uh, or my email address is robert.kateen, K-I-T-T-I-N-E, at corcoran.com. Great. Robert Kateen, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. This is John Christopher for Real Life on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM. And we'll be right back after this short intermission. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me Ralph Pacifico of Pacifico Engineering. Hey, Ralph, how are you? I'm doing great, John. How about you? Oh, excellent. Let's say, um, you know, last year was a little different than most, wouldn't you say? Yes, definitely. So let me ask you, did you find it challenging doing home inspections? And if so, how so? Well, I got to tell you, in the beginning, it was very odd. Um, I actually have uh, one of the jobs I went to. I went in a full space suit. I had on uh, cover, disposable coveralls, um, you know, masks, safety glasses. Did you have a space covers, bubble on your head? Rubber gloves. <laughs> um, you know, that didn't last long. Um, also, in the beginning, it was also quite weird when the first of the restrictions came out. We right. didn't really know how to handle them. Um, and I think you were probably in a similar situation in real estate, people didn't know how to handle them. Can you show houses? Can you not show houses? Can you go into them? Who can be there? Are you allowed to work or you're not allowed to work? So um, I actually, for the first few weeks, I wasn't really sure what to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so, so there were some jobs that were coming in that I didn't accept because I thought I wasn't allowed to do them. But then after that, we sort of realized that we were allowed to do them as long as everything was uh, social distance, not too many people in the house and, and so on. So it, it did work out after a while. Did you ask a lot of the, uh, the clients to leave the house? Um, no, but what we would do is before the inspection, we would ask them that we or let them know we're going to follow all protocols. So we ask for a minimum number of people at the house. We go. Um, so that would mean not, the agent outside? Would, would the agent be outside or? Uh, sometimes they'd be outside. There was actually one inspection I did for a relative of mine. And this was actually the day before they shut everything down. They showed wow. up at the site, husband, wife, kids, brother, brother-in-law, um, realtor. It was like, I pulled up the job site. There were 12 people standing in the driveway. <laughs> Did anybody <laughs> have any beer? <laughs> yeah. So it, it was a pretty, pretty interesting, but, you know, honestly, I do have to say, you know, going out to all the clients and all the other uh, real estate professionals I worked with, everyone was good, very respectful. Um, and I'll be honest, even in a lot of the homes I do, um, because of the area I work in and the times that I'm doing them, a lot of times clients are not able to make the site visits anyway. Right, so, right. Um, do you recommend that clients uh, come to the site? If they can, it's, it's a great thing. Uh, but I have to forewarn them. What I do is very boring. A lot of people think they're going to 
you know, follow me around and learn everything. And, you know, I just move slowly. I'm quiet. I poke at things. I look at things and I move on. So it can be pretty boring, but if a lot of times it's a good opportunity to get another look at the house because sometimes the viewings are limited. You go to a house, you know, you see it for a short period of time before you put your offer in. Um, and then, you know, it's very limited, your opportunities to see it again until closing. So right, it right. is actually a good time if you get there because there's then a few hour block that you're allowed to be there. Right. Did you have any clients that uh, bought the houses or uh, wanted to contract sight unseen? Um, yes, I did. There were um, quite a few in the beginning that um, were people that were just, uh, you know, when I went on site and when all the communication was occurring, I found out they had actually never seen the house. So usually if I know that beforehand, I'll take a lot more photos than I normally do. Because um, typically I only take photos of the bad things. So not necessarily the things you want to do to showcase a house. Right. Usually in most houses, although I have photos of the things that maybe you should take note of being concerned with, there are usually so many good features there that, you know, you don't, also don't want to skew them the wrong way if they haven't really had the opportunity to see it. Well, that's interesting, your approach, because I know a lot of uh, times people, you know, hire a home inspector and they read the report and it's like death, doom and destruction. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, how do you weigh that? Uh, you know, the, the, the well, well, I, you know, it, wear and tear is natural. You know, you have a hundred year old house. It's, it's stuff's going to be, you know, askew. Right. So, so that, that's actually a great question, John. What, uh, what happens is um, as I'm going through a house and I try to put everything into perspective, all right, you know, you're in a 20 year old house, it's the original roof, it's the original air conditioning system. So what I try to explain to people is maintenance cycles on homes. So typically most homes in the 15 to 30 year range they start needing their first major maintenance cycle. That's when the roof is going to go. It's when the air conditioning system is going to go. That's where most of the appliances are going to go. So depending on where it is in that cycle, you know, I may go in and find out that, you know, half the air conditioner is replaced, but the other half weren't. Some of the kitchen appliances were replaced. Um, you know, the roof is original and, and you try to put that into perspective. So it doesn't mean that there's something wrong. And usually when I'm there, even though they're older, the items are working. So it's not really a valid complaint on a 20 year old house to say, well, you have a 20 year old dishwasher. You know, how do I know how much longer it's gonna last? Right. It's probably not gonna last much longer, but you know, it's working, it's operational. It's not neglect. It's not anything that says you can't live in the house. It's a concern that um, you should lose sleep over. Right, right. What about new construction? Have you ever um, recommend that somebody have uh, an inspection on new construction? I actually do a lot of inspections on new construction. A lot. So the, the best case it, scenario go ahead. with those is that it's really a punch list. You know, I'm going through typically, um, and I go through all phases when the house is framed and there's only some finishing work done, and then other times where it's right before the issuance of the CO. So, uh, you know, as you go through the house, you know, whatever systems are there and hooked up, we can report on whatever systems aren't there and or aren't hooked up, we report that they're that condition. Uh, we can always come back again and check them when they're done. 
Um, but it, again, guess, best case scenario is it's a punch list. So hopefully I'm providing a list that the builder knows most of it already. Yeah, I know I have to finish these things up. Um, very rarely, but there are times where it comes up where I find something that is a, is a big concern. Uh, very uncommon, very rare. Like what, for example? What would be a big concern? Well, um, there was one house. Actually, this was a house. I did not inspect for the people buying it. They moved into the house, and they were in it about three months. And there were all kinds of problems. It was built by a developer that, and I'm not sure whether he did things himself and didn't know how to do them, or he hired contractors that didn't know what to do. Things like on a roof, flashings installed upside down, which basically means it directs water More into the inside. structure rather right. than sheds it away. Wow. Um, showers that when you turn them on, you were getting a, a funnel of water coming down in the dining room. Um, That's not good. That just crooked, uh, you know, not level, not plumb. That when you look at the house from the street, you go, oh, looks like a nice new house, big, you know, not inexpensive house by any means but it was just a nightmare that things probably most of these things would have been picked up on the initial pre-purchase inspection had it been done and, and they came in and hired you after the fact was it because they were like going obviously trying to go after the uh, developer correct right they, they, they were trying to um uh to get out to get Actually, I, I apologize because I was a mistake. They were in contract. They hadn't closed. They waived the inspection and they were trying to get out of having to close on the home. Right. right. Did they succeed? Uh, actually, I don't know. No. Well. <laughs> that, that was, that was <laughs> actually, like I say, it was, that was one time and that was quite, that's probably close to 10 years ago that that happened. Right, right, right. Interesting. That's very interesting. Now, you're different than most home engineers in the sense that you're also a structural engineer. Yes, yeah, I'm a licensed professional engineer. Um, we work in other areas in our practice besides building inspections. So, you know, we also do structural design. We, we work with architects and with developers on uh, structural uh, concerns or, or design within buildings. Uh, we do a lot of solar energy system design, which is basically the structural aspect of solar energy how it right. mounts to the building. Right. And then um, more recently, uh, over the last uh, four years, we've gotten into septic design, which is becoming very big in Suffolk County with um, the new low nitrogen systems. Right. Now, how, tell me a little bit about that. That's interesting because uh, um, a lot of people with the septic systems now, even though they, they're more costly than a regular system, Aren't there some grants given with them, like from uh, various uh, yes. uh, towns? Yeah, so what there is um, in Suffolk County, so through all the county, they have a Suffolk County grant program. It's called SIP for SIP, Septic Improvement Program. Uh, you can apply online for it. And you're actually, with that, you're applying for two grants, a $10,000 grant from Suffolk County. And then in the same application, a $10,000 grant from New York State. So $20,000 towards the installation of a system. Additionally, in the town of Southampton and the town of East Hampton, they have town community block grants, which 
um, also offer you know somewhere between sixteen and eighteen thousand dollars additional towards the cost of these systems. Well, the system. How much does the system uh, really cost? It sounds like this is almost, almost like for free. Well, hopefully, if it all works out. So if now you what have a fairly simple, okay, a, you know, fairly simple upgrade. You're not you're not doing a new installation. Um, you're just swapping out your septic tank. You're probably talking on the fifteen thousand dollar range ballpark. If you have to do a new leaching system, those would be what people would refer to as leaching pools or overflow pools. Sometimes people refer to them as. Um, you know that could take you up into the twenty to twenty-five thousand dollar range. If you have a very challenging piece of property, and challenging has to do with the available space on the property, the groundwater level, and the types of soils, those things come into play on the design. You know, these systems can be as high as, you know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars in wow. really extreme cases. That's, right. Those are rare, but they do happen. Right. Especially, I, I would imagine in certain areas where the, uh, like, say, the Sag Harbor Village, many of the homes in the village are on small parcels. Right. I, actually, I've done a couple in Sag Harbor, and we've been very lucky in that um, it's good soils. We haven't hit groundwater, um, but they are small lots. So you just have to be very careful in your design and installation if, depending on how you want to develop the lot. So there are um, setback requirements. The system needs to be uh, so many feet from a house, so many feet from a water line, so many feet from an underground electric line or an underground propane or gas line, so many feet from a swimming pool, so many feet from the property line. So you have to kind of take this all into play and see what you have left for your space. So, you so just, we're working on one now in right. Sag Harbor where they have an old cesspool in the back and they wanna put a pool in. So we're actually, luckily the property is big enough where we get to, we're able to move it into the front yard and do this new uh, style of low nitrogen or innovative alternative uh, is the, system. Is the waistline coming out of the front of the house? That's why you were able to do that or do you? No, the, the waistline is coming out of the back, but we should be able to reconfigure it in the house. It's one of the old uh, homes in Sag Harbor. So it's not a finishable basement. So we can reroute the plumbing in the basement. Right. H however, the owner does have plans that in a year or so um, to do a major renovation, which may include elevating and doing a new foundation. And then right. in that case, you know, also you have the opportunity for plumbing reconfiguration. Now, becoming a, a structural engineer, do you have any internship, like after you come out of school? Well, the way it works- uh, I mean, like, especially to get the license. Co correct, yeah. So to get, to get the license, um, it is four years um, in an, in an en accredited engineering program. So uh, once you have that, you're eligible to take an exam, which um, and if you pass it, it's an eight hour exam. It's really all the things you learn in school in many, many different disciplines. Um, you know, in science, uh, physics, uh, statics, dynamics, electrical, it's a very general test, you know, very broad engineering knowledge. If you pass that test, uh, you're a designated an IE, an intern engineer. Uh, then you, 
um, have to get documented work experience. So it's uh, five years documented work experience. Does that mean under a licensed engineer firm? You have to when you say, I mean, you come out of school now, you have to get a job with a firm, and and do they pay you? They they're probably not paying you. Oh, yes, well. yes, yeah, yeah. How are you? I actually have um, two intern engineers that are working with me now. Um, they've been with me a couple of years. Actually, they're both about ready. Uh, to take the exam to get their full license. They've been intern engineers for, for a couple of years already. Wow, great. Um, you know, but they, they get paid. Um, you know, they, they've been with me. They, uh, they, they do building inspections. They do the structural design. They do the septic design under my supervision. Right. Um, and then when they're licensed, they don't need my supervision. I don't know if I'm uh, willing to give it up though, but, (laughs) (laughs) but at that point, uh, you know, they're allowed to do things like that on their own under their own license. That's really fantastic. I have, uh, you know what, I have to have you come back on the program again, Ralph. Uh, It's been really great. Uh, How, how can somebody get in touch with you? Oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, uh, the best bet is to call 631-988-0000. What is that? I like that. Is that zero, 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 zero? Yes, four, four zero? zeros at the end. So <laughs> great. that is correct. Do you have a, an email or anything like that? Yes. Um, the email is ralph, R-A-L-P-H, at pacificoengineering.com. And we also have a website, pacificoengineering.com. And, uh, you know, just Google us. You can always get a hold. I'd love to talk to anyone. I'd love to... Uh, Anyone that has questions on either a project they're doing or a building they're looking at, um, you know, I'd love to talk them through and see if I can help them out. With Fantastic. Ralph, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. This is John Christopher, Real Life Broadcasting here in Southampton, New York on WLIW 88.3 FM, the only NPR station on Long Island. And thanking you for taking the time to listen to Real Life. And don't forget, have an awesome journey. have been listening to Real Life, the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at wliw.org radio.